really need to roll back that idea that economics is going to save the world. So it's not the utilitarian notion that we might have of this is my land, how can I exploit it? You don't just do a tick box exercise and say, well, this is a sustainable solution to your problem. And so that's why we need to take uh, an integrated approach. Communities live integrated lives. a non-expert podcast seeking to illuminate the complex theme of sustainability. We do this by listening to researchers, practitioners, and people worldwide from different disciplines, backgrounds, and experiences working towards a sustainable future. Marcela Ramos. I am a research fellow at the Sustainability RT at the University of Glasgow. In episode one, we review different ways of thinking sustainably and some values associated to this concept. In this episode, we will use practical examples to understand what it means to have a sustainable relationship with water and how rivers could have rights and in this way, be protected and treated as part of a community. We will also discuss about food production systems and the enormous influence markets and finance have in shaping this sector and what we eat. Underpinning the conversation, attention will become apparent. The notion of development understood as economic growth versus the need to build a sustainable future for everyone. A lot of our economic systems, our legal systems, and the way that we've built our societies have been premised on uh, exponential growth and endless resources. Uh, so putting a cap on the resources that are available to us and realizing those outer boundaries takes a lot of work in reconceiving our, our systems of governance. Jill Robbie is a senior lecturer at the School of Law at the University of Glasgow. Through her research, Jill seeks to understand how our legal systems drive a given relationship with water, a connection that is not sustainable, as it is based primarily on ownership and the exploitation of what we believe to be ours. Um, so law, which is my discipline, um can facilitate overuse destruction of the resources that, that we have, like water. So I often look at, investigate water rights, and this can be very connected with land rights. So there can be water rights, which are property rights. And property in a kind of, in, in a lot of Western legal systems is very individualistic very individual focused and doesn't consider consequences. So I'm really interested in consequences. According to Jill, critically examining our relationship with nature involves looking at the end of the chain and asking about the consequences. For instance, what are the environmental effects of securing water or fishing rights? What are the consequences for communities, rivers, the fish. 
So one big question that I have in relation to property law generally is how we need to reconsider this idea of property rights, ownership, water rights, how all these need to be reconsidered to live within those planetary boundaries with that minimum core of human rights um, in order to find this safe operating space for um, sustainability, this transition to sustainability. The economic and legal systems that deal studies have also created forms of environmental protection. For example, incentives such as carbon emissions credits are designed to promote a more ecological relationship with the ecosystem. Jill sustains, on the contrary, that looking for solutions in the market system means persisting in the same logic that has led us to the current crisis. Instead of having a um, of extending market ideology to everything else, I think we really need to roll back that idea that really um, economics is going to save the world. <laughs> You know. The story we will tell now is an attempt to do things differently using the law system. It takes place in Colombia and is about a community that gets the state to protect the rights of the Atrato, one of the most voluminous rivers and also the most contaminated due to mining activity. The Atrato River is located in northwestern Colombia. It crosses the Chocó department, where Mohume arrived, leading a multidisciplinary team that sought to explore and understand the significance of giving legal rights to a river. La historia de un río lleno de vida y de historias. Una cosa es el oro, otra la mina y otra el minero. Between 2016 and 2023, countries in the world assigned rights and legal status to the rivers under serious environmental threats. And these are the Atrato in Colombia, the Wanaganu in New Zealand and the Ganges in Yamuna in India. So I guess these were quite pioneering um, legislation or quite pioneering um, court rulings. And in my own research, I work on the Atrato River in Colombia. Um, which was um, recognized as a bearer of rights by the Colombian Constitutional Court um, in 2017. Now, the reason why this is significant was, one, it was a popular action, so it was a community-based action brought against the Colombian state uh, because of their neglect to address the socio-environmental kind of problems that the River Atrato was facing. So it really was an act of resistance, using the law as a form of resistance by communities Um, who, who sought for protection in the river. So this, in terms of political strategy, I think is extremely important, but also in terms of the outcome. So in the outcome, the, the, the court ruling, which is quite a lengthy document, really calls attention to the fact that the Colombian state has failed in its duty of care to both the river and the communities around the river. 
It's premised on a notion of biocultural rights. So the concept of biocultural rights recognizes the inextricability or the inextricable links between people and their natural environment. So in the case of the Atrato, the riverine communities who live alongside and along with the Atrato cannot really be separated from its river because their livelihoods, their cultural identity, etc., is fundamentally bound up with the river's course. So if you harm the river, therefore you harm, harm those communities. Monhume is a professor of Latin American politics at the University of Glasgow. Like Jill Robbie, Mo aims to understand the connections between legal changes, the natural world, and communities. Mo analyzes the political and cultural aspects of these transformations. Now, this is really a recognition, rather than some kind of fancy legal language. This is a recognition of their ancestral knowledge, of their way of living. So symbolically, I think that that recognition is hugely important. So we have all of this very fancy kind of legal language, these new concepts, new debates around the rights of nature, which throw up a whole kind of range of its own kind of philosophical and practical questions. But fundamentally, for these communities, this was recognizing how they live and how they wish to coexist in their territory. Their territory is what they conceive of as a space for life. So it's not the utilitarian notion that we might have of this is my land, how can I exploit it? Instead, a territory includes land, it includes river, it includes flora, fauna, and also the people who inhabit. A multidisciplinary team studied the Atrato River. Remote sensing and mathematical models were applied to map the river's changes, diagnose its damage in terms of deforestation and understand what had happened in all these years of pollution. So for me, I think working on this case threw up lots of really interesting questions. I think it has encouraged me as, on a personal level to really think about, about what nature is and how we coexist with nature. But it also, as someone who has historically worked on violence and conflict, it's also encouraged me to really think carefully about the wider ecology of conflict and the role that the natural environment plays, both as a driver of conflict, but also potentially as a driver of peace. Interestingly, This research also allowed Mo to reflect on the scope of the term sustainable when talking about peace, one of her study topics. So sustainability is about protecting the space, but it's also about nurturing the space and about kind of, you know, allowing life to flourish in its multiple forms. And I think I've really kind of learned that from, from them, you know, to think about you know, the diversity of living beings that we need. It sounds a bit flaky in some ways, and particularly to Western ears, I think initially I was like, how does that work? You know, this is, you know, it just sounds too flaky for me. But actually, when you think about the inherent logic of it, it makes absolute sense. Because for something to be sustainable, it needs to endure. For a peace to endure, it needs to be a respectful and inclusive peace that is based on justice. And all of those kind of components go into the kind of the meaning of sustainability. For a piece to last for a few years, it's not really durable. It's not really sustainable. And that usually means that there's something, 
there's something kind of flawed in its in its foundation. But also, I think as when we think about peace, we think of it as the end point of a conflict rather than the starting point. And I think that's really, really crucial. You know, the real hard work of peace building begins once the agreement is signed. Dean's research critically examines the role that law has played in our engagement with what we call natural resources. In simple terms, it is a relationship crossed by economic and utilitarian perspectives, where what prevails is use and ownership, rather than care. Mo presented a case study on a river to which legal rights were granted. The history of the Atrato River allows us to reflect on what it means to understand a territory sustainably, that is a space where the rights of the communities intersect with those of the river. Thus, when the state failed to protect the Atrato, it also fell short of protecting the communities around it. When I think about sustainability, for me, um, what it really invokes is the need for a fundamental shift in the approach to both national uh, development and individual growth strategies of different businesses and financial models, away from a logic of producing as much profit as possible in a short time frame, towards an approach to the economy um, and to society that recognizes that there's an almost inbuilt trade-off between pursuing growth and further industrialization and protecting the environment and conserving the ecological and social structures that are not only necessary for future development, but are also fundamentally life-giving and life-sustaining for humans, but also for other species and for the planet. Anna Chadwick is a senior lecturer at the School of Law at the University of Glasgow. Anna brings to this conversation the political economy lens. Um, I mean, I think when I teach on sustainability, I often make reference to uh, the Brundtland Commission, which was a subbody of the UN that was charged with advancing the debate on environmental governance in the 1980s. And in the Brundtland report, the Commission defined sustainable development as meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. However, I work in the tradition of law and political economy, and what that lens encourages me to see uh, is that our economy and the legal structures that govern it are not built to respond to need. In fact, we have a price system uh, in which value is understood as being produced by an interaction of supply and demand, and those that have greater monetary resources are, and that are able to therefore register their preferences as monetary demand are other people that can command access to resources. That is how the price system works and, and there's been a lot of effort you know, and a lot of thinking uh, in terms of trying to um, lift barriers to enabling these kinds of mechanisms to be the mechanisms that uh, govern the redistribution of resources. So I think this the problem that we have is that the structures of the global economy and our legal structures are really you know, not sensitive uh, to, to these needs. And they're certainly not sensitive to the needs of, of future generations. 
One of Anna's areas of study is food production systems and the way we eat, how and why we consume what we consume, and how much of this is explained by global forms of production. Recent attention has focused on the phenomenon of financialization, so, so how um, speculative financial capital is finding you know, ways to interact with the food system. And there are multiple uh, ways in which that is, that is happening. So one is through this speculative investment in financial assets um, that are linked to food prices and food price volatility. Um, but also uh, there's been shifts within um, the, the agribusiness model um, where there's a greater prioritization of shareholder value, which uh, is in seeking to try to deliver financial returns to shareholders is placing greater pressure on the food system to, um, to try to um, produce food at cheaper prices, cutting labor costs, etc., and exacerbating many of these uh, structural problems. And we also see uh, increasingly um, agricultural land being treated as a financial asset. So we have specialized investment companies who almost capitalizing on the understanding that there is going to be increased pressure on food systems um, have seen that you know, land is going to be a very valuable asset in the decades to come. And, and so um, investment companies are providing channels for actors to invest in farmland and to, to gain access to this. Um, and there, there are multiple ways in which that occurs. And sometimes it's very passive and sometimes it actually involves engaging with the farming itself. But what it's tending to do is reinforce this very problematic corporate dominated industrialized model that is focused on food for profit as opposed to thinking about food, providing food for people. This financial logic has shaped the way we eat. To engage differently with food, Anna believes it is central to build more connections with NGOs and local growing communities, trying to effect change in the food system. Increasingly in, in you know, countries such as Scotland, um, people tend to buy their food from the supermarket, go home, maybe put something in the microwave or, or cook something. And, and, and you know, they're not necessarily eating food you know, as a community with the wider community, but doing this, you know, as we all tend to do these days in a more individual model. And if we want to transform our food systems, we first need to build the kind of communities that can facilitate this shift in growing practices. So many of these groups, um, Wash House Garden, um, Glasgow Community Food Network, Locavore and others are not only showing that it is possible to grow and produce food locally, um, but they're encouraging this, this broader cultural shift and a lot of them are very active in terms of lobbying, et cetera, um, to think and work with policymakers um, at Glasgow uh, through the Glasgow Food Policy Partnership and other initiatives to think about a city food plan and to think about how Glasgow City Council can, can make changes uh, to, shift, to shift towards this, this um, alternative way of producing food and to increasingly move away from, from this problematic model However, the premise that people can engage differently with food is not so simple when we consider the practicalities of our life, time constraints and available money, among others. We also, I think, need broader structural reforms, perhaps, um, in order to, to make this, this change something that's 
many people can engage with. Um, and, you know, I think there needs to be more dialogue, for example, around thinking through structural reforms that would enable um, people, would afford people the time and space to engage differently with food. So, you know, interesting proposals are those relating to a four day working week um, or to universal basic income um, that fundamentally give people the time and space to step outside the kind of very frenzied extractive working systems that we tend to be all involved with these days that mean that people come home exhausted um, and just go to the supermarket and pick up whatever's there and whatever's affordable. Throughout the second episode, we have examined how legal, economic and political systems shaped our relationship with the world around us and to what extent acting sustainably challenges those understandings at different levels. In episode 3, we will use different scales to discuss the complex relationship between sustainability, farming and agriculture in a world exposed to two interconnected and severe challenges climate change and food crisis. About SAS is produced in collaboration with Multiplied By and edited by Emilia Robinson. If you want to delve into some of the definitions, authors and approaches we have presented in this episode, please visit our website where you will find useful resources, documents and links.